welcome to the second episode of Parlando, a new podcast for Classical Voice North America. I'll be interviewing artists with decisive views about the evolving role of classical music and opera in the 21st century, and I'm excited to have the amazing violinist Augustine Hadlisch as my guest on the show. Here's what he had to say about the remarkable 18th century composer Chevalier de Saint-Georges, one of the black musicians whose music Augustine featured in the quarantine videos he posted on social media after the George Floyd protests last summer. I found it interesting, you know, people, sometimes people said he is the black Mozart. I think it was more like trying to find a way to market his music, but I, I think it completely misses the mark because... Of course, there are similarities because they lived in the same time, but he's older than Mozart, and it's more that Mozart it sounds a little bit like Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Augustine also used the involuntary break from his usually hectic Turing schedule to record the Bach sonatas and partitas, which have just been released on Warner Classics. It's a fantastic recording, and we'll hear some of it later in the show. Augustine, welcome to Parlando. I really enjoyed all your quarantine videos, and quite a few of the pieces were actually new to me. How did this project come about? What was the inspiration behind it? It was um, in June of 2020 that uh, the George Floyd protests were happening, and there was this um, conversation going on everywhere around the country, really, in all fields about racism. I felt like it was kind of too easy to just post a you know, black square on Instagram, but it, some of my fans actually wrote and were disappointed that I hadn't written anything about it. I f- finally felt like the way that I could take action would be to explore more music that I that I hadn't paid enough attention to before. That and and it was not hard to find many of these pieces. Uh, it it's not like I it's not like I traveled to like some remote library and found the long lost uh, you know manuscript or something. Most of this stuff was published. And had been performed and recorded before. Just it's uh, not a lot of people were playing it. One just wasn't so aware of it. Do you feel that prominent artists have an obligation or a duty to comment on important social justice issues or pressing political topics? You know, it's I, I usually actually make a point of never posting anything political on my social media pages because I feel like music has the power to speak to all sorts of people who have all kinds of views, even including people with bad views, it somehow actually speaks to people directly. And the moment you introduce other things into it, you're sort of putting up, I don't know, walls. I think basically it's fine to do your art and keep your politics private because I do believe that political opinions are actually something that should be private. You know, there's a reason why, why, the, why the ballot is secret when you go votes. You know, it's, it's something that we, that we do privately. And I, I am a very, poli- very political person in my private life. This particular topic of racism isn't really, or shouldn't be really a political issue. It's more of a kind of a human issue. And it's not like, like talking about how high taxes should be. You know, it's, it's something that's much more important and basic and, so I think it's it depends very much what it is what it is about. I think that if there's something you realize you're very passionate about or you, like you feel very strongly that you have to say something, then I think that's absolutely le- le- legitimate. So it seems that you actually found an ideal way to make a statement by championing these very important black composers. I, I decided uh, to yeah exp- explore a lot of music 
by black composers. And what was stunning was just how much really exciting, good music I found. And I just couldn't believe that I hadn't, that I didn't know it before. just heard an excerpt from the first movement of the Sonata for Two Violins in A Major by Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Saint-Georges was born in Guadeloupe, the illegitimate son of a French plantation owner and a slave. At about age 10, he moved to France, where he became a champion fencer and successful composer. Augustine, how did you end up picking this particular sonata for the project? Chevalier de Saint-Georges was uh, the first composer I, I, I turned to because um, I had heard of him and of his music and, um, and he had such an interest, had such an interesting life story. <laughs> you don't get biographies like that anymore somehow in today's world. <laughs> Champion fencer and great violinist and conductor and composer and great dancer uh, and then revolutionary. And so that's, um, that's the first composer I started with. Um, the strongest example of a composer who was so celebrated in his lifetime and then literally just um, kind of written out of music history books. was Augustine performing the second movement from the Sonata in A for two violins. He also recently performed Chevalier de Saint-Georges' A Major Violin Concerto with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. So why was this impressively talented composer essentially written out of music history books for so long? I think it can have several reasons. We do have to realize that a lot of music kind of falls off the radar once a composer has passed away, especially if at the end of their life they're not they're no longer quite so established. Another reason can be additions. Actually, even these violin duos, um, all we have are these first editions, which have quite a lot of misprints and sometimes things that appear maybe even to be missing. But I mean, of course, there's no doubt that um, the biggest reason of all has to do with, with racism. And I studied music history. I was studying out of pretty old books, uh, but they would list a million minor composers from France and Italy from that time, but didn't mention him, you know, even though he was actually a pretty important musical figure. In recent years, the problem can also be a certain laziness to like not do the work of like looking at all this music and try to find the best one. I knew that Rachel Barton Pine had recorded some of these pieces that I ended up tackling. And so I, I wrote to her and I was like, well, where do, you, where do you find the music to this or to that? And she was very helpful. So I I, um, I started ordering just a lot of sheet music and looking through it and found a lot of very good stuff. Uh, so the, the Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, that was a really cool uh, addition to the to my repertoire because it's very effective writing for the violin. It really just suits the instrument so perfectly. Thank you. 
That was the Louisiana Blues Strut by Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, an African-American composer who died in 2004. And now we'll hear an excerpt from Black Gypsy by Eddie South, a classically trained violinist who performed with jazz orchestras and who died in 1962. is such a cool piece. Augustine, I also saw that you released a video performance of a piece by Daniel Bernard Remain, uh, the violinist who was actually the first guest on my inaugural show last month. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I love looking at him play. I saw some videos online because it's totally born out of improvisation on the instrument in such a natural, organic, genuine way. I think it's really, really great. It's really cool. This piece is, is interesting because it does push me uh, maybe to a place where I don't usually go because it, it it is a little bit in the style of like maybe uh, Jimi Hendrix, <clears throat> that sort of rock guitar playing or something like that. It's not something that's sort of like totally second nature to me, but I found it really fun. Uh, and it, the piece is super intense and... It's, it's a blast. So I, I thought, yeah, that was that was a real highlight. I also really loved the Florence Price project, which I just watched again on YouTube. Tell me about the inspiration for this uh, video recording. You know, after, after I made a couple of recordings after the Chevalier and then the Coleridge Taylor Perkinson and the Daniel Bernard Romain, and then I had this idea of doing the Florence Price piece, which kind of challenging some of my followers to learn this piece, and that I would accompany it. I accompanied them on the piano. And the idea behind that was uh, maybe instead of me just learning piece after piece and then people people see it and they're like, oh yeah, that's a good piece, you know, but then they don't necessarily learn it. By, by issuing this challenge, I would make dozens of other violinists learn a piece. So it might have like a bigger impact. Now I've actually gotten all these people to play something by by Florence Price, so it it would it actually it have a bigger impact. And I was super worried. I, I, I told people, you know, gave them gave them ten days to send in a video. And after like eight days, I still hadn't received a single video. And, or maybe, maybe I received one, maybe by that point. So I thought, oh my god, it's going to be so embarrassing, you know, and uh, that no one did it. Uh, what a fiasco! But then suddenly, in the last two days, I got uh, maybe seventy five videos or something like that. They all just flooded in, and it was. Pretty overwhelming, actually, uh, and kind of moving to see all these videos, young people, old people, professional musicians, students, amateurs. Yeah, I loved watching the video of all your fans coming together to play this beautiful piece with you accompanying them at the piano. Um, and speaking of accompanying, in the before times, i.e. the pre-pandemic era, you, of course, were accompanied by other distinguished musicians or famous orchestras, but during the lockdown, you accompany yourself at the, at the piano or uh, playing the second violin part. So what was that experience like? I mean, I would have thought perhaps it was a little bit strange. The first one was almost like a joke. I was like, oh, this is going to be a funny video. But then it turned out that it was in a funny way, really easy to play because when I recorded the piano part, which I would usually record first, I knew how I wanted to play the violin part. So I found actually that certain things were easier to play together than with someone else. Certain types of rubatos and f flexible things with the tempo that can sometimes be very hard to explain with a person you're playing with. And, and I was able to do pretty much exactly what I had want, 
what I wanted. And of course, it took me a few tries because I would record the piano part and then play to that on the violin and realize, oh, this is way too fast, this is way too slow. You know, I had to try a few times, but then some things were actually easier. The only thing you can't do is, of course, you can only adjust one way. So whatever part you record first, that's what you have to adjust to. And there are some pieces where I had to record one section first on the violin, the other section first on the piano, and then go back and forth. And and as I was uh, doing more of these, because it became sort of like its own weird genre of <laughs> of chamber music or something, um, it became more and more ambitious um, until eventually I had some pieces where it had to be put together out of like 20 or 30 segments, just in terms of who's leading the the rhythm and 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 the the flow of the piece. I kind of enjoy um, puzzles and uh, things like that. So I, I actually sort of enjoyed that part. I just really had to learn a lot about video editing. And there were some days because I was trying to make a video every single day, which was very ambitious. But I would practice a few hours, record maybe one hour and edit like seven, six hours or something. But then sometimes... I would do it and be like, well, I don't think this is good enough. I'm going to redo it tomorrow. You know, I was working way more hours than I usually did before the pandemic, but I, w- I was enjoying it for a few months. It was, uh, it was something to do. And it's not like there were any concerts to play or anywhere to go. You know, you had to stay home. So what else am I going to do? So yeah, it was, it was fun. And in addition, of course, you recorded this wonderful Bach album, which I have been happily binge listening to. I tend to be pretty optimistic as a as a person, but what was hard was when when life changes so completely from one day to the next seemingly. Uh, and so one day I'm traveling around every week and playing concerts and having this uh, leading this exciting life, and the next day I'm sitting at home and I'm seeing just one thing after another get canceled. So that was that was quite a tough kind of change to adapt to. And I realized okay, if if I want to stay motivated and stay also positive and uh, I have to kind of create some new goals. I thought this is actually a chance to do some of the things I never had time for before because um, I had so much on my plate. And one of the things were was um, the Bach sonatas and partitas that I had this this plan that I wanted to record them, but it was probably a, a few years later. It's amazing that Bach, uh, Bach's music has this uplifting quality that I just somehow feel better after I after I, after I play it. And in a way, I wouldn't have been able to make this recording now, or probably not for a few years at least without the pandemic, because I wanted to do it. It was kind of, it was, it had been my plan anyway to record the Bach Sonatas and Petitus, but I knew I'm going to need to take a lot of time to kind of revisit the pieces and kind of tweak my approach to the style as well a little bit. And I was excited about trying them with with a Baroque bow. How is the Baroque bow different from a modern bow? And why did you want to use a Baroque bow for this recording? It, I, f- I feel like it feels very, very natural in the hand. I feel like it's easier to play with Baroque bow because it just kind of is more intuitive the way you use it. Because all the articulations that were often pretty hard to produce with the modern bow, that's in, in the dance movements, when I want the music to sound like it has lifts that go upwards that really evoke the movements of the dance. The Baroque bow almost does that kind of on its own. There's always this kind of 
bounds. And I think it's because of the way that it's that it's shaped, because it is convex and not concave. I love the sense of spontaneity you bring to your interpretation, the buoyancy of the dance movements, and the touch of wildness I sometimes hear, such as in the fugue from the G minor sonata. When I first got in, got to know Bach as a child, I didn't. I wasn't so crazy about him because it was always presented to me as something that sort of builds character. You know, this is this is hard work. It's not fun, but it's good for you. You know, it's really important. And I, I think that's the wrong way <laughs> to approach Bach, which is actually so it's so beautiful and exciting and joyful and expressive. And I mean, there's one one of the things that's great when they're all in anthology that I became aware of now when I was <clears throat> listening to the, the finished recording was that after this incredible drama of the second sonata and second partita and the tragedy of the Chacon and it's just it's kind of overwhelming, then it feels like a rebirth or something. It comes back to life at the third sonata in a in an incredible incredible way and it's it's so full of the fugue of the sec of the, of the third sonata is so full of joy and also the, the third patita and the dances in there it's just so joyful it's such a release after the chacon so as a, so the, the, the overall form of all six is actually quite brilliant I know that performing and programming contemporary music is also very important to you. How open do you find presenters to your ideas? And do they trust that if you suggest a certain piece, that it's something their audience will like? I mean, do you run into any problems in that regard? Presenters generally have always been open to music that's a little less well known. But where I've, I encounter like real hostility, <laughs> I should call it that, it, it's with contemporary music often. Just be that. That's and in fact, I just had a situation again for uh, for next uh, for for next season where a presenter said, "I cannot program this piece, so I have to I have to basically change the recital program just for one of the recitals because this this presenter she's convinced that her the audience will walk out and will ask for their money back, and they have these kinds of fears. And I don't know. And I think totally exaggerated, but maybe. Because there's a lot of crappy contemporary music too, so maybe, maybe there was an experience where a very unsuccessful piece was played, and 
as a presenter and also as a performer, you spend a long time building trust with an audience. So you do need to be careful what you program because if you, if the audience starts to feel like you, you broke that trust, you know, they trusted you came to the concert and then you present, play the piece and it's a really bad piece and they hated it, then, uh, it's hard to get the trust back, you know? So I, I, I'm, I am a little bit, uh, aware of that. I'm curious, what was the particular piece that this presenter objected to? It's, it's a piece by Stephen Hart, Stephen Hartke. And it's a, the funny thing is it's a piece that's, I think, unbelievably accessible. Uh, you know, I mean, like all new music, it's accessible when it's played well and it's very inaccessible if it's played badly, of course, like most things. Uh, but it's actually a piece because it's very, it, there's a lot of humor in it. And, uh, I am actually not worried that the audience wouldn't have liked it. I think it's more that they, they, yeah, there is in many places a fear of scary new music. And then in other places, uh, and this is something I encounter in Germany a lot, that there are sometimes presenters who don't want contemporary music because of the expense of the royalties or copyright, because they're, they're pretty high over there. Prices are different in, in different countries. And I mean, that's when those are, those are usually cases when I do push back and I say, Oh, come on. You, you got it. You, you can afford to spend a few hundred dollars to, you know, put, put on this exciting piece. It's disappointing to hear that there's so much um, hostility still towards contemporary music, especially when you have told the presenter that it's a very accessible piece that you're sure that the audience will love. It seems like in an ideal world, the presenter would trust the artist. But on another note, now that there is light at the end of the tunnel and people are starting to perform again and hopefully the venues are opening up soon, what are you most looking forward to? Is there anything on your schedule? Later in, in April, I'm playing with the Dallas Symphony and they, they are performing in front of sort of reduced audiences. So I, I, I can't wait for that because I know I got to do that a little bit in the fall in a few places in Europe. Even if there are not that many people in the hall, one just feels there's somebody there who's listening live and it's just, you feel totally different on stage. And I think it's something that I took, we all took a little bit for granted that it, it was normal. You know, it felt normal to, for people to get together and listen to concerts and to play for people in concerts. I think when I get to do it again now, it's, uh, I think I'm aware of how special that actually is. I know I, for one, am super excited to hear live music again. And I'm, while I'm so grateful to all the musicians who've been performing online during the quarantine, I am also really, really looking forward to hearing live music again. So thank you, Augustine, for joining me on the show. And thanks for listening. And we'll be back soon with another episode of Parlando Musical Matters with Vivian Schweitzer. <laughs> <laughs>